But first, it's time for Mr Shapiro, contributing editor with The Nation and, of course, the boss of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Bruce, uh, the, the United Nations, the head of the UN, has announced that we've passed a, a warming planet. We now have a boiling one. And I think it's boiling in your area. It's been an extraordinary couple of weeks all over the country. You have to you have to pause and reflect on the fact that 40% of the American population, nearly half of the country, is under heat advisories, is in dangerous heat conditions. You know, we have had, we have the water, the hottest on record in Florida, now 37 Celsius, I did the, the, uh, the conversion, 100 Fahrenheit, um, which is quite literally boiling uh, the coral reefs to death in the Keys and elsewhere. Um, and an even hotter heat dome in the southwest in Texas, in parts of the country where lots of elderly people live. Um, up in my neck of the woods in New England, n- normally the place people escape to in the summer from the summer heat. We've had tornadoes in Massachusetts last week, a couple of weeks ago, devastating floods in Vermont. Um, this is not just another hot summer. This is a summer of nonstop climate crisis. Well, um, that is surely, surely, surely Joe Biden is sorting this out. Well, <laughs> well, uh, he gave a, a very interesting speech the other day on, on the 27th in which he talked about the existential threat of climate crisis in which he declared a heat hazard alert for workplaces around the country. Um, and yet his administration continues to fall short on a lot of a lot of other things. I mean environmentalists were disappointed that he in that speech declined to use the phrase heat emergency, which you would think dozens and dozens of heat related deaths and all this devastation might qualify as as an emergency. He declined to sort of use that language. Um, the Department of Labor, which is supposed to, you know, enforce this uh, workplace heat alert doesn't actually, uh, two years into the Biden administration, doesn't have any heat safety standards. And, of course, from the other side of the equation, from the right, um, the Republican Party uh, continues to try and undo climate regulation. Indeed, uh, the Heritage Foundation, the most influential right-wing think tank funded by the Koch brothers has launched something called Project 2025, an ambitious set of climate deregulatory and fossil fuel deregulatory initiatives that a newly elected Republican president in 2025 or a newly elected Republican majority in Congress could presumably push through. Can't they be arrested on some charge, trumped up or otherwise? (laughs) Uh, uh, there is, you know, there is unfortunately no criminal charge for endangering public health through climate neglect. And look, what is driving this is, of course, this country's profound dependence on the fossil fuel industry. And it needs to be said that that is still driving 
um, the White House and, and the Democratic Party in a profound way, thanks in particular to Senator Joe Manchin and other interests from fossil fuel states within the Democratic Party. Uh, President Biden has greenlit, uh, last I checked, more fossil fuel projects than his predecessor, um, than the President Trump. Um, you know, the fossil fuel industry continues to march forward, even as the country is growing much more interested in electric vehicles, even as various investments have been made through President Biden's um, Inflation Reduction Act that started life as a climate protection initiative. Um, you know, it. these issues are so profoundly divisive in American politics right now. You have to consider the fact that a, a weather forecaster in Iowa several weeks ago was forced to leave his job after a barrage of threats and harassment and abuse on social media. Um, this has been... But climate forecasters, meteorologists around the country are are under attack from <clears throat> climate deniers and fossil fuel champions. That's how divisive the issue of climate change has become. Um, and it's, a, as this summer is demonstrating, a very dangerous time. But Bruce, but Bruce look, let's not, let's not panic about this. I've been banging on about it for... Uh, well over 40 years, and I'm sure we've still got tons of time to, to sort things out. But speaking of things getting hot, the Donald is in even more legal hot water. <laughs> well, it's it's true. Uh, there's there, Then there is legal climate change, and <laughs> the legal climate for press, former President Trump is getting pretty dire. Um, there are two distinct developments. And, and you know, I, listeners, I promise that we're not going to have to do the Donald every single week. But this is really, really a, a, a pivotal moment. There are two significant legal developments in the last week. One is in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, all of those uh, public property documents that former President Trump just hoarded in boxes in his own storerooms in Mar-a-Lago. Um, he Special counsel uh, Jack Smith has um, filed new charges uh, alleging that former President Trump directly ordered the destruction of video, presumably of um, those boxes being moved from surveillance cameras after the FBI began its, its investigation. So this is, as with Watergate, not the crime but the cover-up, the lesson that politicians um, – continually forget. And then I think we're looking down the road in the next week or so to something even more dramatic. There's a the district attorney, the local prosecutor in Atlanta, Fulton County, a woman named Fonnie Willis, uh, has for months been investigating uh, President Trump's apparent shakedown of local Republican officials in the aftermath of the 2020 election, those famous phone calls where the president was pressing the governor and other officials to find him 11,000 votes to overturn the, the Georgia election. Um, Fonnie Willis has had a grand jury, had one grand jury looking at this a year ago. She's about to convene another one. Um, she said she's ready to file charges in early August. And this is going to be a racketeering case. This is going to be under Georgia's local organized crime statute, essentially what 
the, the hints we're getting is that the uh, Georgia prosecutors are looking at this attempt to influence the election as a kind of ongoing criminal enterprise, a mafia-style operation, and those are the laws that they're going to use. Georgia's laws, uh, a lot, Georgia's criminal law allows the use of uh, evidence from other states, so every single state in which President Trump made one of these threatening, cajoling, bullying phone calls and other um, attempts to change the outcome of the election is going to come into play. Because it's a state prosecution, this is not something that Donald Trump could pardon his way out of, even if he were to become president again. His peril is about to increase by a significant order of magnitude. Bruce, uh, in the interest of balance, and you and I are nothing else if not balanced, let's uh, swing the spotlight onto Hunter Biden, Joe's son. Indeed. And not a good week for the Bidens in that sense. Uh, Joe, you know, Hunter Biden thought he had negotiated a plea deal. You'll recall that Hunter Biden had this period of horrific addiction, many years, um, and he was facing some tax evasion and gun charges for weapons he had in his home and for taxes he didn't pay during several years. Uh, he'd agreed to a plea bargain. Um, but it went it went before a judge last week, and the whole deal suddenly fell apart when it became clear that there was a big difference in understanding of how much protection this plea bargain would give Hunter Biden in the event of some future prosecution. In other words, should there ever be a uh, President Trump or another Republican administration in the next couple of years? Would he be immune from prosecution? Uh, the Biden team evidently felt he would. The federal prosecutors said, no, he won't be. And the judge rejected the plea, plea deal and told everybody to go back into the sandbox and play some more. Um, it should be said that in all of this, there is still not one shred of evidence, not one scintilla suggesting that President Biden himself had anything to do with his son's business with his son's efforts to trade on his father's good name, etc. It's still a tragic and sad family story. There is no evidence of presidential involvement. We did see President Biden take one significant step, however, which was to, after some weeks, uh, many weeks of silence, acknowledge Hunter Biden's child out of wedlock as Joe Biden's own grandchild. And this removed an issue which was dividing Democrats. The president's insistence on remaining silent and not acknowledging Hunter Biden's son during months when child custody and other things were up for, up for grabs um, really sat badly, not only with the public as a whole, but with many parts of the Democratic base. And um, Biden finally fixed that this week. Nonetheless, the Hunter Biden case, which I think the Bidens and key Democrats hoped would slide off the screen as um, uh, an issue that brings at least a little bit of doubt and peril into the Joe Biden presidential campaign, is still with us. Um, at least until another plea bargain is negotiated or perhaps uh, until the thing goes to trial if 
no deal can be reached. As you know, I've got the top-level clearance on matters of state security, so can I ask you about you and Oppenheimer? (laughs) Well, I, you know, J. Robert Oppenheimer is, uh, of course, enjoying (laughs) new new fame thanks to... uh, thanks to the film. Um, I have found myself thinking over the last couple of weeks, um, first, of all about, first of all about the huge damage that we still live with in this country from the, uh, from the exile of intellectuals like Oppenheimer, from the mainstream of influence uh, during, during the McCarthy period, and, and that's profound. I also, however, as we approach Hiroshima Day later this week, I found myself thinking about one of Oppenheimer's colleagues whom I met um, sometime in the late 70s when I was a student at the University of Chicago, a remarkable physicist named Joseph Rotblat. Joseph Rotblat was a Polish-born British citizen. He was a physicist working on the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos, and he was the only scientist to walk away from Los Alamos in 1944 when it became clear that Germany was not going to be able to develop its bomb, that Germans defeated uh, the point of inevitability of Germany's defeat, uh, Rotblat came to the conclusion that that the gadget, the first atomic bomb project, could no longer be justified. And he, he did something that no one else caught up in n- nuclear weapons fever d- could do at that point, which was to leave. And he devoted the rest of his life not only to his own interesting research, but to um, forming the Pugwash conferences, nuclear disarmament conferences, bringing together scientists and other and policymakers and other thinkers. Um, I met him towards the, the, the tidal peak of the nuclear freeze movement in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's really worth reflecting on the fact that 30, 40 years ago, we really had a popular nuclear disarmament movement which was worldwide and which had a profound effect on in pushing Ronald Reagan, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, to, and then later George Bush, to um, achieve the kinds of arms control which now have been unfortunately largely abandoned. Good on you, Bruce. Bruce Shapiro, contributing editor of The Nation and exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.